Well, good evening. <laughs> One of the pastors, yes. That's so great to be here with you this evening. And as you heard earlier, we're focusing on Jesus as the Son. And specifically, we're going to meditate, we're going to marvel, we're going to behold right now for the next few minutes what it means for Jesus to be the Son of Mary, to focus on Jesus' humanity. And in order to do that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Pastor Paul went through verse 17, and so we're going to pick up there with verse 18. And as we walk through this next section of Scripture, we're going to answer three basic questions. And these are questions that I ask in my house all the time. Come into the room, what's going on? Second question, how did this happen? And then third, and most importantly, why? You guys ever asked those questions? Yes. Ask those questions a lot, and that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes looking at this passage here. So Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18, first answering what's going on. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So what's going on? A virgin is pregnant. Mary would, had gone off to see her husband Elizabeth, and she, when she arrives back, she is with child, and Joseph is just befuddled. He's, he's disappointed. He's confused. He's discouraged. He feels like everything has gone wrong for him. And Mary longs for Joseph to know the answer to the next question, how did this happen? But she can't make that happen. All she knows is that God has got to reveal this, this amazing thing that a virgin could be with child. And thankfully, God answers Mary's prayer. Because we pick up next, how did this happen? Verse 20. But as he considered these things, meaning Joseph, as he was about to divorce her quietly, he didn't want to shame her. He didn't want to publicly make it worse than it already was. He considered these things, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. How did this happen? Two words, the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's a marvel. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's impossible. Mary asked the same question earlier when the angel appeared to her in Luke Chapter 1, she said, how can this be that a, that a virgin could be pregnant? And the angel answered and responded. In Luke chapter 1, the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It is an amazing thing. It's something that only God can do. In fact, two verses later, the angel says to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Amen. Amazing thing. A marvelous thing. I want you to behold Jesus, the son of Mary, a tiny little baby inside of the womb of Mary. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever you deem impossible, God says, it is not impossible with me. Most important question, though, is why? Why would God do this? Why would he fulfill the coming of the Savior in this way? Three quick reasons that the angel reveals to Joseph in this dream. Reason number one is talked about in verse 22. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Reason number one is this, to fulfill God's prophecy. This has always been plan A. This has not ever been a plan B. God, from the very beginning, has said, this is what I will do. And he revealed this to Isaiah over 700 years earlier, saying there's going to be a sign that God is going to save his people. And the sign is this, that the virgin shall conceive. And it even goes back farther than that. If you remember from Genesis chapter 3, when God proclaimed what's called the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel, he said, from the seed of a woman. A woman does not give seed. From the seed of a woman. A seed that's implanted in the woman. Shall come forth one who will crush Satan's head. Amazing, glorious thing that Jesus would come in humanity to fulfill God's prophecy. If you were to take all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, by the way, over 300 in his first coming, even if, he, even if one person fulfilled seven of them, the probability of that would be one times 10 to the 18th power. And Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his coming. It is a wonder, it is a marvel. It is a a glorious thing that Jesus is the son of Mary. So he came to fulfill God's prophecy. He also came to manifest God's presence. What does he say again? It says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has always been with his people, but not in this way. God has come and made himself flesh. He has become humanity to save humanity. He came in the form of a baby to be completely dependent on his parents. He came to come alongside of his people, to be with his people through the ups and the downs of life. He experienced pain. He experienced suffering. He experienced hardship. He experienced rejection. He experienced delight and joy and peace as well. He came to experience it all so that he could be with his people that he could know his people, that he could intercede for his people. He is a faithful high priest who is with his people through the end. So whatever you might be going through right now, Jesus knows and Jesus prays. Jesus loves you. He is with you. He is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. He is not a God who is distant. He is a God who is near to his people. Marvel at Jesus the son of Mary, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. And last but not least, Jesus didn't just come to fulfill God's prophecy and to manifest God's presence, but most importantly, to save God's people. Look back at verse 21. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Yeshua. God saves. There was no other way to save God's people. This was the only way. Jesus had to become human in order to save humanity. He had to become flesh. He had to dwell among us, and then he had to bear upon the cross the weight of our sin. The purpose of Jesus' coming wasn't to bring him to the cradle. It was to bring him to the cross for you and for me. Jesus was perfect in every way. He experienced all the suffering that we experienced, and yet he did not sin so that he could be the perfect Savior, that he could take upon himself our sin so that we could receive the righteousness of God, that we could be rescued from all of our sins so that we could see Jesus, God in the flesh, forever. Marvel at Jesus, the Son of Mary, our Savior, the one who became a human to save humanity. Beautiful, marvelous truths from God's word. And so if this has raptured your heart tonight, we must respond the same way that Joseph did. We may not understand all of the implications and understand all of what it means to be a virgin giving birth, but we must grab hold of these truths in the same way that Joseph did. Verse 24 When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He obeyed. He trusted. He grabbed hold of the promises of God. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph looked at his son and said, You will one day die for me. Amazing things for us to consider tonight. Marvel at Jesus, the Son of Mary. Well, good evening to all of you. It's such a joy to be with you on such a wonderful night, a beautiful night on the eve of something miraculous. You know, as I was thinking about tonight, I, I came up with a question I wanted to ask you, and I even want to join in t- into this as well. And the question is this. What are you marveling in during this season? Where do you find your affections? Where do you find yourself in a place of just saying, this is amazing? Now, it can be superficial things. I mean, maybe you're in a place of just marveling at the fact that we, we have a new season upon us in FSU land with a new coach. You can marvel. Maybe at home you marvel at the amount of candy your kids consume during this season. Can it get any more? And they say, oh, yes, it can. In my household, it's dad. How many more cookies can you eat today? And I say, I don't know. Let's find out. (laughs) Amen. But then there's the other things, too, that I think so. Think of in a more traditional way, the the traditions we have, the the season that it is in a way that just brings us to a place of reflection, of worship. You know, maybe there's, like myself, there's things all the way back to your childhood, growing up, maybe growing up in the church, the traditions that resided there. I grew up in a Missouri Synod Lutheran church. I served as an acolyte, and in our church, 
we had a giant statue of Jesus, a marble statue standing at the altar with his hands outstretched like this. Now you have to understand to a 12-year-old acolyte lighting the candles under the watchful eye of the statue of Jesus, quite intimidating. But at the same time, there was something I inherently knew that was special, that was something I should be beholding in regards to what this season represented. And you see, that is the season we are in. Advent should be filled with wonder. And I want to join us to this truth tonight. In Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, we, we see an account here that there are many things to marvel at And I want to take us to two things. I want us to look at to uh, understand that there is indeed a marvelous message that is contained within these verses, as well as a marvelous response. In verse 8 of chapter 2, it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened with the Lord, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told, told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered, wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, this is a very familiar passage. And I think our minds go to several things in here that we say, yes, there are truly marvelous, marvelous things that take place in here. An angel appearing, not to an important group of people, but to just mere shepherds, servants, slaves, despised by many. But can I just you into something a little bit more subtle here, but yet so profound. The marvelous message of the angel. In verse 11, we see this messenger, this angelic messenger, speaks and announces the birth of a child. It announces that the, the Savior, the Messiah, is now born. And the Lord is with us. Now, it's easy to gloss over the Lord and think, okay, yes, the Master, our our Lord Jesus. But we have to understand that the word here itself, the word Lord, 
is referring to the same word found in the Septuagint that is referred to as Yahweh. So what we are seeing in the angel now is basically this. Today in Bethlehem, a baby is born who is your Savior and your Messiah and is also God himself. Praise God. God himself is now with you. A miraculous reality, a miraculous thing, which can then take us to, well, why God? Why does, why does Jesus have to be God? Well, we see a glimpse of this in what the heavenly hosts go on to praise God for. In verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The heavenly host announcing that now peace has come to the earth. Peace has come to God's creation in so desperate need of peace. And this points to a reason why Jesus himself had to be God. Because only someone who was truly and fully God could be the one mediator between God and man both to bring us back to God and also reveal God most fully to us. And this is what the angels themselves, the heavenly hosts, are announcing. We see the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, where it talks about that there is one, only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus himself. And so I don't simply want us to marvel at the fact that now peace exists on earth. I don't want us to marvel simply at the fact that, that, that God brought peace, but I want us to see that God did it. The very fact that God did this is what we are to marvel at. Why? Because God didn't have to. He did. And so as we go to verse 14 again, we we see this response. We see a response of of worship. We see a response of wonder. And that's where I really want to help us drill down to here and just get to this place of worship and wonder before God himself and what he has done. Let us join the angels themselves in worshiping God. Now one thing to note here. The angels themselves, they're referred to as what? The heavenly hosts. Now hosts, this is, this is a, a military term. In the military, God's armies, the armies of God are the ones who are declaring what? They are declaring peace has come to the earth. In this truth, it drove them to what? It drove them to worship God. They were beholding this incredible miracle that had come to pass, and they are worshiping God. So I want us to join in this worship, but I also, let's join in the wonder of the shepherds. Let's join in the wonder of the people that heard the message that the shepherds brought. And I think we can also take a lesson from the you know, the shepherds themselves. Why the shepherds? The shepherds were poor. They were in poverty. They had nothing. But this points to the fact that we too, we have nothing apart from Christ. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The shepherd's poverty reminds us that without the poverty, 
the spirit of poverty, there can be no abundance of God. Where do you find yourself? Do you recognize your poverty before the Lord without Jesus Christ? I invite you to really reflect upon this truth. Without truly understanding, you cannot truly understand the abundance and the goodness of what God gives us. So let's worship in this truth. Like I said before, this is a season of wonder. The highest gave up glory to be born of the lowly. The logos and the light became body and blood. The kingdom of God itself began in a mere manger. But yet the angels of heaven sang the hope of all humanity. So let's revisit this during this season. Let's revisit that God himself came to this earth to make peace with man. And I'll ask you this final question. Are you at peace with God tonight? Where do you find yourself in that question? My encouragement to you is this. Run to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And I'll leave you, I'll leave you with these words here from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. It says, our words rush out of the sight of the divine child. We try to put into language what is implied in the one name, Jesus. But at the bottom of these words are nothing except a wordless silence of adoration before the ineffable, before the presence of God in the shape of a human child. Amen. I could have all the attention of the kids, just so you know, kids, you've been patient, you've been awesome, you've been great, we're coming to your favorite part, so just hold on. Writing about the, writing about the baby Jesus, or Jesus in his earthly ministry, the Apostle John tells us this, it's a very familiar verse, he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Author Anne Boskamp, in one of her books, narrates the following story. It's 100% true. I verified it on Wikipedia. I know it has to be true. No, it really is. The year was 1983 in Australia, and the competitors all showed up to run the inaugural Sydney to Melbourne Ultra Marathon, just a, a hop, skip, and a jump of 544 grueling miles. This ultra marathon would typically take about a week, which is why, of course, everyone snickered when Cliff Young showed up. The other competitors just say were all world class athletes in their 20s, and Cliff was a 61 year old potato farmer. And he showed up to run in overalls and his galoshes. And you have to ask, what else would you show up to run a 544-mile race in, right? Now, I want you to know up front, this, I'm not going like, to hold you in suspense. This story does, it does have a fairy tale ending. Cliff Young not only wins this race, but he wins it by a lot. Instead of taking the usual seven days, it takes him five. He beats his nearest competitor into the ground by 10 hours. 
And inquiring minds want to know how in the world did this 61-year-old do it? I'm looking out at some of you. I know you're 61. You could not do this race. I'm 50. I could not do this race. I don't think maybe one of you out there could do it. I don't know. But how did he do it? Well, on the first day, all the runners took off, leaving, as you can imagine, Cliff in the dust. And Cliff just begins to shuffle along. Think about the moonwalk in reverse. You know what I'm saying, children of the 80s, right? His boots, overalls, he's just sort of plodding, <clears throat> shuffling his feet. And, and there's, there's no question that his upbringing had a lot to do with his success in this race. He had a lot of practice on the sheep farm growing up where he, where he was, herding sheep on, foot, so feet, on his feet. So he knew endurance. He absolutely knew endurance. And this surely helped him, but he didn't know speed. So as this race in its first day went on and on, Cliff fell further and further behind. Now, the standard way to run this race, if you could call it that, is that competitors would run hard for 18 hours, and then they would sleep by the side of the road, attended to by their team. They would sleep for about six hours. They would get up, run 18, 6, you get the idea, right? And seven days or so later, the best of the best athletes in the world would be done. But not Cliff, however. While Cliff, while all the other competitors surrendered to the darkness, so to speak, Cliff just continues to plod along. While everyone else is overcome by the darkness, surrenders to it, the darkness doesn't overcome Cliff. He just runs through the dark. He, in a sense, is acquainted with the dark. He embraces the dark, and in a real sense, he lives in the dark. See, John, when he says here that the darkness has not overcome the light, that word overcome literally means to be overtaken, to be seized, to be caught up to. It's as if something is chasing us or chasing him, but it never quite gets a hold of him. See, Jesus traveled. He passed through. He lived in the darkness. He made his home there, but he was not overcome by the darkness. And Jesus himself tells us why this is the case. In John 8, 12, he says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. You know, there were a lot of lights that had come before Jesus. We're studying about one of them on Sunday mornings here at Four Oaks. In Genesis, Abraham, he was a light. Moses was a light. David was a light. Heaven's sakes, John the Baptist was a light. They all ran their race incredibly well, except ultimately they succumbed to the darkness. The darkness of sin and death overtook them. They died. They perished because just like us, they are mere mortals. They are mere men. But Jesus says, I am not a light, I am the light. I came into the world, I was born 
in order to die. But sin, death, darkness could not overcome me, Jesus says, because not only am I man, I am God. And I've risen from the grave. And I've come to shine the light of the light of the glory of God to rescue us, to rescue people from sin and death. Darkness, folks, is overtaking all of us. It's inevitable. This is why we see such a higher rate of self-harm and abuse and suicide this time of year because we feel it pressing in. it's, It's a hopeful season, but it's a sad season because we know there's a darkness that, humanly speaking, is pursuing us and that one day it's going to overtake us. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world Darkness has not overcome me. Now, I'm looking out in this room this this evening, and I would imagine that most of you, probably most of you, are familiar with that. You might even acknowledge it. You might even would say that you believe it, that you assent to it, that you affirm it. But let's be sure to read the rest of that verse in John 8, 12. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, absolutely. Whoever follows me, follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, here's, here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. It is, it's possible to see the light. It's possible to recognize the light, to admire the light, to sing about the light like we're doing this morning, to light, can- this evening, to light candles to the light. To hear about the light, and dare I say tomorrow morning, even celebrate the light. All of that is still possible, but yet we can still be in darkness. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, that is the one who is no longer in darkness. That is the one whom death, maybe in this life, we succumb to, catches up to us, But ultimately, for eternity, Jesus is the light of our salvation. See, the question tonight is, are you trusting, following Jesus the light? Because if not, the light will do you no good. But for those of you who are following, trusting, clinging to the light, we have an amazing promise tonight. We are no longer in the darkness. Just like Cliff Young plowing through, plodding after plodding after plodding step through the darkness and not succumbing to it. So it is for those of us who know Jesus Christ. Every year we celebrate this reality of Jesus as the light by lighting our Advent candles. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as the light, of the world, I invite you to join us as we light all of these candles together. On behalf of the pastors, the elders, the staff, cannot thank you enough, church, for being here with us, celebrating Christmas Eve together. Um, If you don't have a church home, just so you know, we we worship here every Sunday, 9 and 11 a.m. We'll be doing that this Sunday. We'd love for you to join us if you don't have a church family Let me speak this blessing over us. It's the same one Isaiah spoke 
over 2,700 years ago when he said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the light of his glory has shone over us, has smiled upon us. Follow him, Jesus, the light of the world. You are dismissed. Merry Christmas.